And another reminder that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It gives you everything you need in one place, and it's free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools, so you can record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. And they'll distribute your podcast for free. So you can hear it on Spotify, Apple, Google, and many more. Just like us here at BraveMaker. Make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app today and go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Hey, Brave Makers. This is Tony Gapistone. You're listening to episode 56 of the Brave Maker podcast. I'm going to jump right in. Just to say, this is a hard time. We know that everybody is struggling with the shelter in place, and I hope you are finding some way to cope through it, take care of yourself. If there's anything we at Brave Maker can do, uh, let us know. I mean, we're trying to provide you content through podcasts and our online Zoom meetings, as well as our online short film screenings and meetings of filmmakers, which are happening. Go to bravemaker.org to check all of those out. There's lots of things you can get involved with to help you stay creative, as well as hopefully help you cope, not feeling overly pressured to be super creative during this time. But if you want to be, we're here for you. And we're offering these things free in lieu of charging for any of these events as we're shut down from our public gatherings. I do invite you to consider how you might partner with us for our 501c3 nonprofit. All of our donations are tax deductible for you. And we can't do our work without you. It's all because of your generosity that enables us to hold these podcasts and have office space and create opportunities for filmmakers to grow their craft and make these connections. So thanks so much for being a supportive community. We can't do it without you. And this is a good one. This is episode 56, Jeff Lieber. I don't even know if we get into it, but I think I've been connected to him for three years solely because of Twitter. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to share your story and be who you are and be authentic online because you just might find a really cool connective uh, collaborator that could give you the inspiration and mentoring that you need. So huge kudos to Jeff Lieber, who's been super inspirational to me in my life and my career. And uh, it sounds weird to say it, but he's been mentoring me through Twitter and I hope he can mentor you too through this podcast. Enjoy. Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. We're getting through it, man. Hey, uh, thanks so much for doing this, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll just start recording uh, right now for the Brave Maker Podcast here. But I don't know if you remember, you probably don't, but we connected. This is a great example of the power of social media because Jeff is an avid Twitter user, our guest for today. <laughs> and he's on it a lot. I think way, maybe more than me. I love, I retweet a lot of his stuff because it's so engaging around the world, uh, but also around writing, which is what we're going to talk about today. But I can't remember if I heard you on a podcast first and then followed you on Twitter, or I saw something you posted on Twitter and then heard you in a podcast. But you are from Illinois, so am I. Yeah, Chicago, uh, Evanston for me. Where Where are you from? I was born in Evanston. No way. Yeah, <laughs> Evanston Hospital. Um, I think I don't think it was Evanston Hospital. I think it was either maybe I was born in Cook County Hospital, and then I was 
brought to Evanston, but that's where yeah. I always say I'm, I'm from Evanston, Illinois. I usually say Chicago and then I say really Evanston. But then I went to yeah. North Park University, uh, right, really, really close, Foster and Kedzie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went to ETHS, so we're in the same world. Yeah, and you have an acting background. You, so I just felt like I really had this synergy with your, your story. I love <laughs> that you started with film. Uh, then you broke in and started creating shows, right? That's kind of your story is getting into the TV show running world. Is that kind of how it went? Um, I started out as uh, I, I went from being an actor to believing uh, I was going to be a half hour writer, uh, writing half hour specs in Chicago, thinking, you know, like at the time it was Seinfeld and um, and Mad About You and Frasier and all those things that existed 30 years ago. And um then I pretty much realized very quickly that I was not uh, a comedy room guy. That was not, that was not where I was going to be happiest. And so I, when I came out here officially from Chicago, I transferred over to writing film and got a start in that and had a couple of films made, uh, Tuck Everlasting, a film of mine called uh, Tangled, which is not the animated one with, you know. With I, I realized that. Um, I looked that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. When I say Tangled to people, they all say, they're all like, oh, the Disney one. I'm like, no, not that one. <laughs> um, and then I was really early in the world in which tv executives decided that the that film writers should write pilots and it's funny because i wasn't i wouldn't say that i was someone who um had a substantial film career at the time so i was not snobby enough to think like oh tv you know i thought oh this seems like a cool thing because we're um, talking so at this point we're talking like 20 years ago right because you because you know you came out to California in what year, 1997, eight, something like that? I came out in, uh, in uh, January of 95. 95. I got my first okay. writing gig in uh, December of 97. Okay. And I wrote my first pilot in 2001. Um, had my first pilot uh, made in 2003. Had my first pilot go to the series, which was lost in 2004. And then sort of move from there. So in the early 2000s, they were just starting to get to that point where they were like, oh, we'll get, we'll get film writers to write for TV. Um, and I got in early enough uh, that it was um, that I was at the, right at the front cusp of that. Um, and that's when I really found my um, both my voice a little bit and more importantly, the thing that I love to do. And so you're commenting about like in context back in, even in like early two thousands, it really wasn't sexy, right. For a film maker, a screenwriter to be in television world at that time, it was kind of like film was still the end all be all. We really weren't yeah. in TV that we are in today, but you just kind of suddenly dropped you, you created lost <laughs> and that I remember because my wife and I got married in 2004 and that became our show. Congratulations. So I love that show and I'm sure you're, you talk about it all the time, but can you share a little bit about that? Because it's an interesting like show to be the co-creator of because it's so defining. Yeah. Well, and it's a super complicated story. Right, so, right. you know, uh, as you probably know, but if you don't, you know, I wrote the original, I was, I was at the beginning of a lot of things. I wrote the original pilot for it. Um, that was called Nowhere. Whole, Is that it true? was called Nowhere. Yep, yeah. Cool. Yeah. It was called Nowhere. I and like that title. I handed in the, I handed in the first draft. And at the time, this is well, well trod, but I'll go for it here. But, uh, um, so when I got hired, 
um, I was hired under the auspices that the, that what the network wanted to do was a hyper realistic show about surviving on an island. And and the thing that had just come out was Castaway with with Tom Hanks, and that's what they were looking for, or that's what they claimed they were looking for at the mm-hmm. time. And so I pitched the pilot and sold the pilot and was um, partnered up with National Geographic at the time so I could justify every uh, insect and change in weather and so on oh, and wow. so forth. And, and you know, again, at one point in the process, I pitched a shark attack and got pushed back that like how, how prevalent are shark attacks? How often do they happen? You know, um, and so I handed in a draft and they seemed very happy and they said, here are some notes. And as long as you don't hand in blank pages, we're going to shoot the thing. Um, and then two weeks later, the, the whole house of cards fell in and I was gone and my, and my producers were gone and they brought in JJ and Damon and the show that existed came on. So the frequent joke of mine is I was doing Lord of the flies and they ended up doing Lord of the rings. Um, <laughs> so it, it was very, you know, what I was doing was really about, you know, sort of human survival on an Island. Um, and they were doing a genre show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing that's just from a business standpoint sort of interesting was that was also the beginning of when um, show creators and showrunners th- there wasn't a real history of people taking over other people's shows at that time that was the beginning of that um, for better or for worse um, and so that was a real moment in time you know when people go back and look at when essentially the the concept of creating a show and running a show became sort of slightly separate, that was sort of the moment where that all took off. And so I, I've done a lot of just looking into how this whole thing works, but for our listeners, I know we're in the Bay area. So our audience is a San Francisco Bay area film community, which obviously isn't as robust as it is in LA or New York. We, We have a lot of things happening up here, but we're not, you know, we're not having regular TV shows shooting up here. We have them, but not on the regular. Our hope is to yeah, yeah. happen. But as someone who experienced this, this as part of your story, can you talk about, I don't know, if it's, is it a painful thing? I mean, to go, hey, I, I co-created this show. You're kind of forever attached to it, but had to like push it out into the ocean and let it float away. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was super confusing for years. I mean, for years, people would say to me, hey, congratulations. And then I would launch into two and a half minutes of, well, yes, but, uh, but, but. And so on and so forth. And it took me a little while just to say, thank you. Yeah. Um, And to own um, my piece of the story, which is different than the show, right? So there's, there's my piece of the story and then there's the show story and they're slightly different. Um, um, I, I've only seen about five episodes uh, ever. Um, uh, I enjoyed them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I consider myself to be some part of a genesis of something. Sure. Um, and I'm happy that I got the credit and I'm happy mm-hmm. that the you know, financial stuff worked out all fine. Um, but there's sort of two different things entirely, which is there's my experience and then there's the show. Um, happily for me, when people set, start to talk about the ending of the show, people have very emotional feelings about <laughs> right. that. I could say, you know, hey, look. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> It wasn't me. I, I parachuted. My, I joked that I parachuted out just as the plane started to descend towards the island. And oh, yeah. That's, that's so funny, dude. 
So for people who don't know, like the business side of how credits work, quote unquote, can you tell a little bit about what that looks like? I mean, I know like uh, in our, we do screenwriting classes and we're yeah. doing about uh, like film credits, for instance, if someone writes a script and then someone else writes on top of that more than whatever it is, the 33%, then they get a, an A and D added to it, blah, blah, blah. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in regards to TV or, and or film, whatever you want? Well, what's really the, the guild is a couple things. One, um, one of the many things that the Writers Guild has done right, and they've done things wrong, but they've done many things right. Is the first was that they got us healthcare, and the second is that they got us the right to adjudicate our own credits. Um, and so, all cre- accreditation comes through the guild, not through the studios, not through producers, and so on and so forth. And the guild is very um, protective of of the initial writer which is super helpful because, yeah. you know, Hollywood is very credit, uh, very, um, the 800 pound gorilla in Hollywood rules. And so if it were given to the studios or the producers, the named writer would always get credit. So there would be the little writer writing away and then in would come the big writer and they would get all the credit mm-hmm. and the money. Um, the guild protects first writers. And so, um, if you are the first writer in, and if you were in the first draft, your likelihood of getting credit is fairly high, even if they rewrite every word, um, because concept is king. So in the case of Lost and many other pilots I've done, um, if there's more than two writers on a project, um, I believe this is just the case, maybe it's three, but I think it's two, and there's not a, just an agreement as to what the credits is, it automatically goes to arbitration. So I didn't have to, at the time back then, um, do a lot of fighting for myself. Um, there was one attempt from uh, Touchstone to say, oh, this has nothing to do with what you were doing, which is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that went away, there was just an accreditation process. And then there's a statement, and then it all sort of played out as it does. Um, so I would say to writers there, um, if you have an idea that you love, and you are passionate about it and are not even sure of your own ability, write the first draft, just write a draft, have the draft, because that will protect you. Should you, should you eventually decide to hand it to somebody else or somebody else takes it over, you will have that draft as the basis of the, of the idea. Cool. That's great. Thank you. So we'll get to all your TV credits. Um, but I want to talk about you. I've heard you, uh, on podcasts, but also on your Twitter feed, your showrunner rules, by the way, uh, go follow at Jeff Lieber. So you can know what I'm talking about. Cause he posts these and he does, uh, ask me a Q and a sessions, like on the, on the regular, on the weekly, is it weekly or kind of whenever you feel like it? It's, it's, it's like once a week I do it once I, a week, you know, I, I find myself, you know, just sitting there with an hour to spare. And look, it's, I love doing it because it's fun. I've met people. I yep. had these interactions that mean something to me. Yep. Um, they also clarify my, my process to myself. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, by regurgitating them and being able to defend them to people when they say, wait, what does that mean? I have to go, Oh, this is what it means. And then it causes me to re look at, I was, I put up a, a, a five, I put, tend to put up five a day and uh-huh. about there. And one of them was about, um, a joke about, you know, when you hire an editor, interview them, but sit behind them and look at the back of their head. Cause that's most of what your relationship is going to be. Okay. Uh-huh. That, that rule, which I did five years ago is not really true anymore because mm-hmm. editing setups have mostly changed. So there's an extra screen and there, and you're, and you're looking at each other in a way. So it caused me to go, Oh wait, this rule doesn't really apply anymore. This is not the way we edit anymore. And so, um, the repetition of them for myself and the process of putting them out, answering questions 
I hope is a service to people. Yeah. But also it just redefines for me what it is my process is supposed to look like. And they're evolving, right? That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember your, your, your one about the uh, hiring an assistant director, make them wait or something like that. And you peek through to see how many. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. that one. Yeah, like when, that one. when you interview an, uh, a first AD, make yeah. them wait for 15 minutes. And if they check their watch more than 10 times, you hire them. That's, a, that's Because, great. you know, th- there's a thousand different jobs that ADs do, but one of, the, one of the necessary ones is just push the crew. I mean, not in an unpleasant way, but I mean, like, keep track of. Yeah. Otherwise, every time you, between a take, you can just feel time dripping away, like, you know, I love rainwater. That. That's great. So you talk about in your, you know, you, on the regular, when people ask you the, the age old question, how do I break in? How do I get in? You have, I think it's two. Um, and one of them is you need a mentor, which is such a hard thing to find in this industry because everyone's so busy. So in some way you are, you're mentoring people through Twitter, by the way, I think, which I think is really cool. That's been sort of my story. I didn't go to film school. I was an actor and then I self-taught. I started writing my own stuff, making my own stuff. And I go to podcasts and I go to YouTube and Twitter to, to learn. So that's been really helpful yeah. for me. Um, the Bay Area is a little bit different, right? Because we, we don't have a lot of these people who are way advanced. So the LA world has to sort of influence uh, us from, from down there. Your second one is live an interesting story or have something notable, a, a book or uh, an interesting um, experience that gets elevated into the zeitgeist that then people want to take that, right? Is that kind of your, your, your two things of the way to, to get in? Yeah. Well, and the third, and the third one is be Steven Spielberg's daughter. <laughs> Nepotism. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So that's the, yeah. the three. So the, the, the mentor one is, is, is sort of the classic way, which is that you meet someone, you take an interest in them. They're a good writer. You make them your assistant. They work for a year or two for you as your assistant. You get a show, you bring them on as the writer's assistant and then the second season. And, and I always, I now write almost all my scripts with somebody. So on this last season of, of the show I was doing, I wrote with the writer's assistant and I wrote with the script coordinator. Um, a, because it's an incredible way to get them a paycheck that they won't, that on top of the regular paycheck, which, and B, it gives them an experience and C, it starts moving them towards the thing. And for me, it means that I can, um, uh, uh, if I don't have to take on the, the, the fullness of a script, I can uh, multitask in a way. So I can, I can work with them and then I can go run the room or I can work with them and then go down editing or whatever I need to do. So um, that process of mentoring um, is how most people sort of make their way onto a staff of a TV show. The second way is, this, is sort of this concept of either IP or uh, um, EP, emotional product. So as we continue to move away from shows about doctors and lawyers and cops, right. You know, um, I did a show, uh, developed and never got on the air show about, about a failed climb of Everest. And so when I was a staff, when I was putting together a writer's room for that, I needed somebody yeah. in that room who was a climber. And so I went and found someone who was a climber and a writer young, you know, and that was my way of bringing them into the world. And if you have a specific talent, um, still, by the way, lawyers and doctors and cops, that helps too. But if you have specific things or life voices, um, then when people start to assemble rooms, they'll be like, I want these two or three writers. And then I need somebody to whom is going to check sort of the emotional reality of the room. And so that's the second way in. And then the third way in is to be sort of done. Yeah. So I really gravitated toward that. Well, both of those ways. I mean, obviously I, we all want to be mentored and find people who can teach us, but 
my, my story is interesting. And some of our audience fits in this is we're in the Bay area. So we're not in LA. I know the thing is, well, get to LA dummy. Uh, but you know, I started late in my life. So I already had my three kids, my wife, uh, it was really hard to get to LA. So when I hear that, that other, um, that number two way I go, my kind of adjustment of it is I got to make stuff. I think I have an interesting life. I have a unique kind of collaboration that I was a pastor and I'm a filmmaker, blah, blah, blah. But it's making stuff now here on my own, however I can. Right. Do you have any comments on that? No, I think that, I think that's really wise. I think I, what what I would push you or people like you to do is come to LA twice a year Mm -hmm. for a week, Mm -hmm. like just, and then, and, then you contact all the people you know, the me's and whoever else you know, and you take them to lunch and you tell them what you're doing and, and then you check in and then you come back six months later and you make that part of the process because, you know, ultimately um, there's never going to be a vibrant TV world there because rooms are here mm-hmm. or in New York and some in Canada. Um, and that probably is not going to change in the, in the near future. Although I got to say, you know, one of the things about the moment we're in right. is once we get used to doing rooms like this, shit's going to change. Yep. Like um, it's going to be a lot easier for someone like you to be part of a room once we all get used to. And if we ever get to a point to which proximity is, um, dangerous or proximity is dubious, then that world may shift a little bit. But, um, and I think that's coming. I think, I think if this lasts long enough and we get used to working like this, then the the need to put everybody in the same room may change. That aside. So I I, I would say, yes, your, your path in is to make something that everyone goes, Oh my God, what the hell is that? Who is that person? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I have a, a friend who I who I met through Twitter and so on and so forth, named Ryan Knighton, who is oh, yeah. a um, blind ri- blind writer out of Vancouver. Yeah, he's in Canada, uh, isn't that right? I, he's in Canada. Yeah, Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. And I heard him. He did a This American Life about him getting lost in his own hotel room, um, uh, and I was just compelled by it. So I looked him up and I found him, and we started interacting over, over Twitter. And then I met him when I was in Vancouver and I haven't been able to hire him now because he's all hired out. Right. Uh-huh. But like, this is the kind of interaction that little, this American life was the thing that caused me to go, Oh my God, that's a guy who's got a voice. I don't know. You know? And so that's, that's how you turn this into that. I love that. Yeah. And just for our listeners sake, whenever you're, you're listening to this, we are recording this uh, March, 2020 in the middle of the coronavirus shelter in place. We're going into our third week of shelter in place. So as Jeff Lieber here, our guest comments on the reality of how the culture and industry is changing with so much going online. This is a really fascinating time to tell your story. You, many people are on their computers right now on their phones, scrolling, right? We want to consume things and stories are really king. We're all going to the arts to get through this. I'm going to the arts to, to cope. I'm binging things. I'm taking things in and I'm creating and writing. So that's a really, really great point. Thank you. Which which, by the way, is very impressive. I, I I was at the end of a room after 10 months. So I was exhausted when this moment happened, Mm. but, um, so I haven't, I haven't written anything. I, I've done things like this because it's my way of staying in contact. But if you can be creative, that's incredibly impressive. And I, I, I talked to one of the things I did recently was I put online, Hey, if um, 
if you have if you're a teacher who needs an hour to fill and you have a creative writing class, I'd be happy to. So I skyped into one for USC the other day, and I said to them, you know, every generation of kids who are 19 to 25 eventually narrate their entry into the real world. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, uh, there, um, um, there was the St. Elmo's Fires mo- movie and Breakfast Club and all these sorts of things, yeah. right? And I said to them, look, I'm sure this feels daunting, but you will have the responsibility to tell the story of what it was like to enter the world in this moment in which the whole thing turned upside down. And that is both an immense um, uh, responsibility, but it's also an opportunity because um, I can't tell that story. I can maybe imagine it and try to get my head around it, but I'm not going to be the author of that story. That's beautiful. Yeah, stories rule. That's our brave maker. Our our mission is to elevate brave stories. We believe brave stories can change the world, and we we each have the story to tell and story to live. That's beautiful. Can you comment about the you were mentioning, and I've heard you talk about rooms, how you staff rooms with different skills and abilities and experiences, just like that example of someone who obviously was a climber, as you're doing an Everest yeah. uh, story. But uh, as someone who's in my 40s and who started, you know, in my mid 30s, um, I often feel intimidated by the freedom of a 19 to 25 year old who can pick up and live on a couch and, you know, maybe get uh, become a staff um, assistant or whatever and build their way up. Some of our filmmakers have a woman who's in her 60s, 65, and she's doing her first film and she wrote it about her own addiction to gambling. And I love it, but she's 65 and it was such a long road for her to do it because she felt so intimidated. Any thoughts you have about age and how that works with getting into this business? Well, uh, there's, there's, there's two things. One, the upside to someone who is your advanced age, and I, I say that with all, <laughs> with all uh, irony there, is that you have more life experience than a 19-year-old. And because you are late into the career, you are slightly cheaper than an average 40-year-old. So there is an upside to that. Uh, it's hard on you, and you have to figure out how to do it financially. But, but um, uh, uh, um, there is there is there is a positiveness of that. Um, in the film world, it doesn't really matter. Right. The product is the product. It's a one-time thing, and if you can bring the goods, great. Um, Again, as a career, it's difficult because she will come into the world and let's say, let's say somebody wants to buy that wonderful movie and, and so on and so forth. She will get paid um, a certain amount, which is a lot, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have to ramp her way up. So that's as a career, it's hard. But as a, as a, a possibility, it's, it's totally doable. On the TV side, it really is the hard part is just the sweat equity. So the, the, the math for you is, okay, how do I, because, because to get somebody like you at the price point I'd get you at would be hugely useful to me. Oh, I've got 40 years of life experience and stories and so on and so forth. And I'm getting it at a staff writer point, not at a co-EP point. And the difference between that is thousands and thousands of dollars in the budget. The mm-hmm. trick on your end is to figure out how to make it work. Right. Um, and that's just you know, that's just math. And it's yeah. sometimes re- really difficult math. It's, um, it's not that there is, um, it's not that people want a 20 year old more than a 40 year old. It's that a 20 year old can get paid, can take 20 week contracts and get paid, you know, what is it, five, $6,000 a week, which is 
good. Um, and then not work for a while and so on and so forth. Where as a 40 year old with three kids, it's a harder process right. to do. Um, it's, not, about- it's not possible um, at all. It's just uh, math. Yeah. That's good. I mean, would you, would you say like for someone in my position, really focus on the film end of things as the side kind of creating things on the side as I move and build the momentum? No, I'd say, I'd say always write whatever compels you to the fucking keyboard, right? Whatever gets you to write, do that Yeah, because it's too hard to write. You know, it's too hard to game the system in any meaningful way um, such that you know, another one of the rules is, you know, don't chase a trend because the yep. bigger writers are there already. So you just have to write whatever it is that makes you want to write, right? And that's it. Because, if, you know, let's say you were to write the passion thing that has your heart and has your soul and is your voice and nobody else's voice and you wrote a film. If I read that, I'd be like, hey, if you're interested in TV, do you have the ability to come in as a staff writer? Because you can write, dude. And you know, I mean, so it doesn't matter what it is, if it's compelling or if it's content or whatever, it, you'll find your, your way over into the world. Uh, oftentimes, somebody will say, "Hey, this is great. Do you have a comedy? Because I need a, you know, do you have a this? So that could be. But I, I just, I just feel like you can't game your way in. The the two scripts that that launched my career. Now this was. 20 something years ago. So it was a different world. We're both small independent movies that no one in the studio system could make, but, but, but it was somewhat freeing for them because they could read it without feeling like they had to buy it. And so they just read it and they were like, Oh dude, you can write. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of led, led to things. So I just say for someone like you, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't try to game the system. I would just do whatever it is that, that compels you to keep going. Oh, that's good. Thank you. The, the common uh, question too, about people breaking in usually is like, how do I get people to read me? How do I get an agent, et cetera, et cetera. You have any thoughts about that? I know like I've heard other people say, um, everyone will say the same thing to you if you take them out to lunch, right? Just let me see your work or keep writing, keep doing your thing, keep making your stuff. But, but the feedback question about how do we get people to give us feedback to tell us if we're talented enough? How do we know if we have what it takes? Yeah, well, a couple of thoughts. One, don't worry about agents and managers. They will come. You get your first job and then you get your agent or manager, right? Yeah. For the most yeah. part. That's yeah. um, not totally true. If you go down the path of creating your own IP, um, or, you know, you write a book, you climb a mountain, you, uh, you're the first man to, or woman to stand on Mars, right? Great. Then, then, then someone comes looking and says, Hey, I, you know, that's, but on the, on the whole, you get your first job through interactions like this, where you get to know somebody and then, and then you say, Hey, look, I've written something. We read 10 pages, you know, and if you, and if you like it, you can keep going or not. I just, I just need to know. And it's just, I mean, I wish there were, I wish there were a formula. Mm-hmm. I wish there were a um, simple answer to these things. And the best thing I can say is just be diligent about connecting with people, be patient with them, be kind, have a yeah. sense of humor. And, and then eventually somebody says, yeah, I'll, I'll read 10 pages. You know, yeah. um, I always feel bad because it sometimes takes me months to read 10 pages, not because <laughs> I don't want to, but because I'm just overwhelmed. Sure. And, and my whole life is about reading screenplays. So the thought about yep. reading another one is painful sometimes. <laughs> um, but I try to do it because, 
you know, I got to start because someone's assistant's friend read a script of mine, gave it to the assistant. I mean, this is the third, this is after three stops and starts, but someone's assistant's friend read it, gave it to the assistant. The assistant read it, kind of hated it, gave me notes. I did the notes for the assistant and no one does notes for the assistant. They gave it to the agent, you know, like somebody has to reach down back across and help. Um, and so, um, so, I mean, I, I wish there were a short answer other than just, you know, meet people, um, come to LA in New York from time to time, be on the social media things and be interesting and funny and tell your story create your own stuff whatever that is um 15 second tiktoks um, yeah. uh, uh painting it doesn't really matter what it is it's just about honing your voice i just love that i appreciate that so much and again you you do give a lot back to the social media community for doing that and i just want to hear so i, I hear you saying which i think is a beautiful thing there's no formula there's no one template everybody has a different breaking in story. And that's the beautiful thing about this is to be creative, you need to be a problem solver. I hear you saying too, we got to figure out and navigate how we're going to make this work. So I love that. And I also love that you also talk a lot about, we need to have talent. We need to have property, emotional property, intellectual property. We also have to be a relational person. It's about building relationships, about being kind and compassionate and not being a douchebag. <laughs> I've heard yeah, you well, and also, and also uh, know that your story is as valuable as your, as your content. Meaning, you know, uh, w- there was a, a writer who uh, I worked with recently who was not on the page, the most talented writer that I read, mm-hmm. but they, as a person, um, had a background that made them very different than everybody else in the room from a sexuality point of view, from a uh, um, cultural point of view, from a um, economic point of view. And when certainly in the TV world, when you're at the bottom of a staff, you're not there to write great pages. It's cool if you do. It's fantastic if you do. But what you are there to do is provide perspective and ideas. And so the decision to hire that person came because I thought their ideas were going to be worthy and, and th- we'd bring them along as a writer. Um, you know, you asked earlier about staffing a room and I yes. joke that, you Talk know, 12 it. great writers is like having a car, is like having a car with 12 steering wheels and no brakes and no windshield wipers and no gas tank. So you want, you need three or four people who can really write, but you also need somebody who is just going to fire ideas always and doesn't, and no matter how stuck you get, we'll keep firing ideas. And you need the person who, who can keep track of character arcs so that when you start to do something, they're like, they're like, Hey, why is she doing that? And you need the person who is able to crack a joke and, and make connections between all the writers. So you're trying to establish a group of people who do slightly different things as opposed to, um, it's great to have 12 great writers. It's super. Um, with the exception of a very few procedurals that don't really exist anymore. Um, you're going to be sitting in a room interacting with a bunch of people and you have to figure out a way to be part of that community. 
So Brave Maker listeners, that's such a really key point to take because I feel, especially in the Bay Area, we we kind of have to do everything. And in some way, when we're starting out, we should. We should be learning everything. We got to be a great dialogue writer. We got to be able to describe our action scenes great. We got to be able to write, you know, three uh, three dimensional characters. But there is something to be said about this collaborative nature about filmmaking let alone the writer's room, that when you come to a table, you don't have to be good at everything. It's important to bring some skill that yeah. interlocks and connects. So I re- that's really good. Um, well, and, and also one other thing, which is, which is that, you know, I've often run into people online who are like, why can't my writing just stand alone? And I'm like, it can't. Go write poetry, go write books. You can have that, that interaction but even then you need to have an editor. So, so, so this thing we do is relational. This yeah. thing we do is collaborative. Um, the, the, the ultimate expression of it is to try to, on some level, um, uh, connect with an audience in a relational way. So there's just is a part of it that is about that. And so if you are, um, if you are that writer who's like, I don't interact with people, I don't, I just write. There's a there are worlds for you, but it's pro, it's definitely not TV. And even in film, you're going to have to figure out some way to have a, have interactions with people. <laughs> Somebody just got their heart broken. <laughs> sorry, that's I'm great. Sorry. But 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 I think novels can work that way. I think, sure. I think there are other forms of writing. It's just not. That's right. You know, you end up on a if you succeed, you end up on a set with 180 other yeah. people, and. You know, that's what it is. You're right. you're part of this weird army, you know. That's right. I mean, some some writers definitely not me, but some writers definitely envision being secluded in a cabin in the woods with a uh, a nice bottle of vintage something. I don't know, I don't drink wine, but something red, I don't know, and by yeah. themselves for weeks upon weeks and months upon months, but that's not the reality in TV. It's like you have to you're I heard you say 70 to 80 hours, right? You are giving most of your time to a show when you're when you're doing whatever however it's 13 or 22 or whatever episodes you are with these people yeah (laughs) especially if you're the showrunner you are you are working uh in the office from 10 to 6 every day and then you are putting in two to three hours on the other end as well Um, as a staff writer you're you're probably there 10 to 6 but then you're writing nights at time to time and weekends and you know when you're when you're on draft, it's sort of all encompassing and you just have to be able to do that. So Jeff, let's talk about your, your shows. You, you create, you write, you produce, you show run all that stuff. Um, so NCIS new Orleans, that's like one of yeah. your, your main shows, right? Uh, let's talk about that. Like how did that come to be? You didn't create NCIS, uh, but no, I didn't die. <laughs> no. And by the, it was a very odd, it was, um, I, I decided I had had a bunch of I had a year and a half of work uh, d- doing development and somebody came to me and said, Hey, you know, will you come run this show? And I thought, I just want to go make something, a lot of something. And the truth was I'd never watched an episode of NCIS. It was not a show that I was, you know, but I just thought like, I'll figure it out. It'll be interesting. And it really was, I mean, doing 24 episodes of a TV show, over the, uh, I did 30 episodes of that show over the course of, 16 months or 70 months and it was wonderful and amazing and fantastic and exhausting mm-hmm. um and it taught me a ton um and it introduced me in new orleans which was great and i love the people i was working with but it was um i had before that only ever run or been part of 13 episodes or 
15 episodes at the most. And doing a full run of network television was an education unlike anything else. Was it, was it all shot on location? Yeah. Room was in LA. Uh, set was in New Orleans. Okay. Wow. How did that, how does that work? Can you talk a little bit about being a family man? You have two children They're on the older teen side, but how do you navigate now, that? Yes. It's really hard. I mean, uh, especially, you know, um, Monday morning on set tends to start at, let's say, 7 a.m., which means that actors are rolling to get to set by about 5 a.m. Well, 5 a.m. New Orleans time is 3 a.m. L.A. time. So I would put my phone on the nightstand beside me and I would um, put it on vibrate. And then I would just pray that at 3 a.m. on Monday morning, <laughs> nothing was going on there. You know, so, right, so, so set there is, is uh, 12 hours to 14 hour day, right? Starting at, at, at uh, 7 a.m. on a Monday. Um, and so I am essentially on call for that entire period of time. Most days go off without the children or ever having to hear anything, but not every day. Um, and then the room starts up here at 10 and it goes till six. And then all that time I'm dealing with logistics. So if I'm going to write, it's going to be writing when I get home. And so I get home at six, I eat with the kids and, and my wife and so on and so forth. And then about nine o'clock, whenever else is tired, I go back to work till midnight. And then it starts the next day at 3 a.m. again. I, one of the things I learned there that I didn't do incredibly well is I did not delegate well. I did not have at, at my side the, the, the kind of people who I knew and trusted in a way. And, and this was on me, not on them. Um, I just didn't figure out a way to hand off enough work. And so... I was kind of doing everything and that was, that was my education to, Oh, that, that doesn't work. You know, and, and you spend a lot of time just communicating with, with set, right. You know, it's, it's phone calls, it's, it's Skype meetings, you know, zoom. Um, and you're just trying as much as you possibly can to, uh, communicate because one of the difficulties when sets moved away from LA is there becomes sort of two camps. There's the writer's room and then there's the set. And it's oftentimes that you can lose trust between the two, um, which is really dangerous. And for our listeners who don't know, so as a showrunner, you're you're writing, you're overseeing the whole production, you're overseeing all of the writers, the story, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the actual production, you're hiring directors who then deal with the actors and bringing that story to life. How does that work from a distance? It's super complicated, uh, yeah. especially because... Because again, most directors get in to bring a vision, right? When you're hired as an episodic director on a TV show, we don't want your vision. We do. We just want a little bit because what we really want you to do is figure out how to shoot the show we're always doing, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're coming on a set with an actors with actors who know who know what their character is on a, with a DP who knows how the show is being shot. So your job is really just to figure out how to enact those people and then bring you know a tiny little bit of your own vision to the show it's problematic when a when a director comes in and brings too much because all of a sudden the entire language of the show falls apart and you know and so there's this thing called the uh, a tone meeting which tends to happen on the second to last or last day of pre-production where the, the showrunner sits down with the director or over skype and literally walks through every scene and says here are the here are the pitfalls. Here are the things that are important to us. Here's, you know, what, you know, remember that no matter who has the most lines in the scene, this scene is about our characters. 
So even though that guest cast has all the lines, this scene is there to see how our character interacts with that guest cast. And don't ever mm. forget that. You know, and you have this tone meeting, which is, which um, I try to do in an hour and a half, and sometimes lasts five hours. Oh wow! Wow, that's amazing. You know, depending on depending on the show and the showrunner yeah. and how they sort of see things. And all that sort of wow. Um, Jeff, do you have any resources that you recommend for people who are getting in? Um, like when you talk about like setting tone meetings, are there books and online things you'd recommend? You know, it's funny. I don't know. You know, people have always asked me to take the show rules and turn it into a book. Um, and I haven't had the time, nor do have I, was I totally sure it was interesting enough, but there I don't know that there is a great book on show running. And if there is, somebody needs to, to, to tell me about it because I, I don't know that it exists. Um, what I always say, both from a writing standpoint, screen TV writing specifically is a, cra- is a craft as much as it is an art. And it is something that you have to go and do and be part of and understand from an experiential level because so much of it is experiential. Yeah. Um, from a writing standpoint, I would just say the thing that I recommend to everybody is find a script or two of a TV show that you love. Sit there, go find it online, right? Find an episode or a pilot or whatever, read it. Then read it while watching that episode. Yeah. Then read it again. That's like really that's the easiest way to go, okay, I see how these things work. And the only part about that that is hard is the draft you're likely reading is the last draft, right? Mm. It would be useful, but hard to get a hold of the draft that's sold because it tends to be very different. The sell draft doesn't worry about budget, doesn't worry about, well, I'm shooting in San Francisco, um, so I can't have a nice flow here, right? Um, the first, the first show that I ever, uh, ran myself was a show called Miami medical, which was a CBS procedural medical show. And the, um, it opened with an explosion on a cruise ship. When we went, when they greenlit it and said, go make it, we couldn't shoot on a cruise ship. No cruise ship would let us anywhere near them. <laughs> Certainly not to have an explosion. Exactly. And so it turned into this entirely different thing. But what I sold had this cruise ship on it. Right. Mm. And so it would be helpful for people to read that cruciate version and go, oh, that's how he got a man. Interesting. You know, did that connect with product placement or brand connection at all? Well, the reason we couldn't shoot on a cruise ship did. Yes. No cruise ship wants, you know, you know, they were like, you can shoot on the cruise ship as long as everything is happy and good (laughs) and so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there'll be a bunch of cruise ships uh, left uh, empty after this experience we're going through now. And some people exactly. shoot on cruise ships. Um, uh, I was going to say, I remember you talking about, I don't know if it was anecdotal or it was real, but you talked about the challenge of getting, you know, like what first script you get and then what script you shoot because of all the negotiations with actors and schedules, but also studio network notes, but also product placement. And you had an example about uh, like some sort of, violent attack having to then be put into a car because you, I don't know if that was like anecdotal. Do you remember this story? Because, I, because there was like a, a product placement with the car company. I was like, wow, that's intense that a car would be so. Well, yes. I, 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 oftentimes um, somebody, somebody commented about that. If you want to know who the bad guy in the movie is, they're the ones not using an iPhone because 
Um, Apple computers will not let you use an iPhone if your character is evil or bad. Sure. So there you are. You're watching the movie. Everybody's got an iPhone. And then there's somebody with a Galaxy Note <laughs> and or whatever. That's the bad guy. Yeah, because other because other companies don't have the same. They're just trying to find a way to use their products in, and so that it's this it's this game people play, which is spot the bad guy, which is they're the one not using the iPhone. I love that. Okay, last couple questions. Thank you again for your time, Jeff. This is oh, you're welcome. I think this is like what is that? What is that thing over your shoulder with the little tiny screen there? What is that? Oh, down on the shelf. I found this on the side of the road years ago. It's a little tiny Sony tv oh my god it's fantastic is that awesome <laughs> i know it was like free on the side of the road i was like dude i just must have this for my office does it work i've never used it because there's no cords oh dude you gotta figure out a way to get that i going. know isn't that, that awesome makes me so happy i know yeah. someday i was like i'll a green screen it or something for a film of mine but yeah this is just too good some sci-fi thing <laughs> all right cool uh, so, hey, how are you taking care of yourself during uh, the shelter in place? Or just in general, how does a showrunner practice self-care? Um, it really helps to find things that have nothing to do with this business as much as possible. Um, I, I, I have taken this moment on to try and, re- and, reach, and reach out as much as I can um, to try to reach out as much as I can to people. So my, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing a ton right now. Um, again, I, I'm just coming off the season. So it's, it's kind of okay. But like, you know, my choices were to engage in this and say, Oh, let's, let's do this with people who I think are interesting and, and start relationships. Um, I'm doing the questions and answers. I volunteered to say, Hey, if you've got a writing class and you need somebody to come in and talk, I'm willing to do it. So and so forth. Um, I also have just like, dived into exercising i got a peloton because you know <laughs> i'm trying to be creative in some way every day um the, the other big thing i just tell people is like um how do you how do you eat an elephant don't actually eat an elephant but how do you eat an elephant you eat it one bite at a time yeah and so to write a screenplay to write to create a tv show to do anything is about diligence and tiny little bites like just if you write two pages a day in uh, 30 days, you have a screenplay, uh, a TV pilot sort of thing. Uh, and you don't even need 60 pages, you know, 50 pages. So t- two pages a day in 25 days, you've got a, you've got a pilot. And an outline first and figure it out, you know, whatever. But it's possible to do these things as long as you don't try to do it all at once. The concept of writing a movie, especially a really amazing movie, is so overwhelming from a mental standpoint the, the best you can do is just be like, okay, I'm going to be kind to myself. I'm going to be reasonable with myself. I am not going to try and write Citizen Kane today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to write two pages of Citizen Kane today. Like, that's doable. Mm-hmm. Like, one image comes to you and one interesting thing, and then you work it out and you spend four hours and you wrote two pages. Great. That's so, great. That, so I just try – that's the thing I, I constantly tell myself. is like figure out ways – to make goals that are achievable and then you just keep going. Yeah, I dig that thing. That's good. That's good advice. Even, like right now, especially being careful that we're not putting pressure on ourselves to have to complete that feature film scripts in, in shelter in place when you're worrying about trying to make ends meet for rent and when you're trying to deal with your family. It's one day at a time. That's really good. That's really good. Yeah, and just, and just like, you know, use it as like 
I'm just gonna I'm gonna put aside two hours later and I'm just gonna see what I get out of me and I know I'll get something and maybe it's about the thing I'm working on or maybe it's about something else and then I'll go back to my life for a little bit. And that stuff adds up. If you do that, it really does. It doesn't take so long to get an army of material of your own if you just, you know, I think it is impossible. Some people can do it. Some people write nine hours a day and three days later they have a screenplay. <laughs> I I feel like if that's the expectation, you will fail. And if unless that is your process, and to those people who it is great, but to the rest of us, like that's not really the way it works. Yeah, good. Are you watching anything? You watching Tiger King? What's uh, what's on? <laughs> what's we, on your we, binge we, watch? It's funny. There's so there's there's a ton of things. Um, I I watched the first two episodes of Succession, and then was like, I've seen this show before, and I stopped watching. Now I got to go back. Uh-huh. Um, I did the same thing with uh, the Americans years ago. So I got that ahead of me. Um, I watched Tiger King. <laughs> totally great. Um, Shit's Creek. I, oh, gosh, the I title turned me off. Oh, my God. It turned me off. So I never watched it. Now I've been howling my yeah. days away. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I one of the things that's going to come out of this is, you know, again, I say to everybody, don't write your epidemic screenplay now. There are already three writers who are, you know, uh-huh. just don't write that. They're probably you know, shooting it right but, now on their cell phones in the middle of LA. Right, exactly. <laughs> but the thing, but the but the things that you will write right now will um, like that will hit will likely take advantage of the themes of isolation or connection or a world gone mad and so on and so forth that don't necessarily have anything to do with the virus, but do have everything to do with the feeling states that we are in right now of uh, money and work and jobs and relationships. I mean, there's going to be some great, amazing relationship movies that are going to come out of everybody stuck in the fucking four walls with each other for hours on end. Um, And we'll need them. We'll flood to the theater. Yeah. Uh, What what made you cry recently? Um, What made me cry recently? Uh, it's funny. I, I I had an experience yesterday where I was, and I can't remember. I mean, I get vulnerable, and like it doesn't take anything, you know. Like, uh, I think it was, you know, what it was it was a video of a, a of a, a nurse um, showing us how she suited up each day. So mm. it was a time lapse, yeah, of her starting blank and then putting on and putting on and the white suit and so on and so on. And you know, that was just so overwhelming to me that I just sat there sort of like staring at the computer crying. Um, uh, so stuff like that. You know? That's great. That's I, great. I feel, I feel badly that the next, that, that the generation that's going to come, my daughter's generation, she's mm. about to go to college is going to have to figure out how to, you know, the world just changed, you know, and there's no way to deny that fact. Did your daughter um, have to give up a graduation? She give she well we're, we don't know yet, but I mean yes, oh. she will likely give up a graduation. She will likely give up uh, a, a prom. Um, oh. She's supposed to go to NYU for photography in the fall. I suspect that will get pushed back a little bit. Um, she you know she's doing pretty well with it, but you know um, it'll be part of her story, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that, that's one thing that has, that grieves me a lot. Like it's just all the stories of our kids. My my daughter gave up her play really super sad. It was supposed to go on two weeks before everything went down, but just hearing people giving up graduations, I've heard weddings, 
between proms, seniors in high school and seniors in college, like this momentous threshold event, like that really, that really gets me. Gosh, I'm sorry for that for her. Uh, I, I hope, I hope she, your daughter, I hope someone picks up the mantle and says, all right, we're going to do the play. We're going to do it on Zoom. And then we're going to put, because like, those are the moments, like, you know, if I see that on Twitter, mm-hmm. I'm like, retweet, like, <laughs> yeah, like figure out a way to at least honor these moments because I mean, it just feels terrible to have those things go away. And just, you know, it's not going to be the thing it's supposed to be, but at least it should exist. It's a great idea. I didn't think about that. I've I've seen a few of those. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Totally do it. And then send me the tweet and I will ask, I mean, just like do do it in the, in the gallery thing. And just like, that's a great idea. it it, It deserves to be, it deserves to have the moment. That's a great idea. I'm stage manager. I'm going to email the director on that. That's, I didn't even think about that. Just getting kids in their costumes, man. That's so good. Okay. Last, last two is, uh, how would you define being a brave maker? What does it mean to be someone who bravely makes? Um, it is, uh, to remove your own judgmental voice and more importantly, the judgmental voice of the rest of the world off your shoulder and be unafraid that, um, that your true self is, um, um, singular in a bad way, which is to say that the things that scare you are, are all that different than scaring anybody else. The things that worry you are all that different than things that worry everybody else. And so the more you can just write from this sense of what happens next, what's interesting, what's compelling, what will make me feel, that's it. That's brave. Um, and try as much as possible to relieve yourself of worrying about what the outcome is. Um, uh, easier to say in my position than in a starting out position. Totally understand that. But as much as you can understand that the things that find their way through, find their way through, regardless of you have worrying about the outcomes, just don't do it. Just worry about, just follow your passion and follow what happens next. You heard it here. Jeff Lieber, everybody, where can people find you on social media, Jeff? Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm Jeff Lieber. I'm, I'm, and I'm uh, loud and idiotic and crazy, but I'm, but I, but I really do. I really do appreciate these interactions and I appreciate you reaching out and I look forward to being able to come to San Francisco and in person hang out with you and your students. Cause I would Thank you so that. much, Jeff. Yeah. We're Jeff and I, before shelter in place went down, we were talking about bringing him up for the film festival, for our pitch fest to potentially do a couple workshops on writing. Um, we have not officially canceled that, but we're pretty, that, that's coming out next week. <laughs> our team is uh, swallowing our pride and wiping away our tears, recognizing it's probably going to move to September. So be on the lookout for that official event uh, change. Great. September. Fantastic. Yeah, right. In September. Okay. We'll Jeff, hey, thanks so much. This has been so good for me. Uh, selfishly i'm like i needed this (laughs) so all these questions were for me but i also uh, know our listeners and the brave maker community will be really encouraged so thanks for doing your work and uh, being who you are and i hope that peloton and your family gets a lot of use (laughs) it's gonna all right dude thanks so much my pleasure it was really fun thanks for listening to the brave maker podcast subscribe give us a rating and share with a friend BraveMaker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Want to be social? Find us on Twitter and Instagram at BraveMaker, Inc. Brave stories change the world. You are the story. <laughs>